Good evening, and welcome to the March 2023 edition of Outbeat News In-Depth. I'm Greg Moralia. Well, my guest tonight is returning. His name is Nathan Mansky. He's the founder and CEO of I'm From Driftwood. It's an organization that captures the stories of LGBTQ plus people. Now, Nathan was first my guest just after he started this organization, and he never imagined it would still be going strong today. But he's back tonight to share his story and why I'm From Driftwood is more important today than ever. It's all coming up next, right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, March 26th, 2023. I love to change the world. This is Greg Moralia with your Outbeat Radio News for the week of March 26, 2023. This month, the FBI released a supplemental report on hate crimes reported in the year 2021. As we reported last fall, the usual annual report on hate crime statistics did not include data from California and Florida, as both states missed a deadline to transmit hate crime data to the new federal system known as NIBRS. The result is that this missed deadline was a hate crime report that erroneously showed a drop in reported hate crimes, when in fact reported hate crimes increased in 2021. The supplemental report updates the data to provide a more accurate reflection of the reported hate crimes in the United States. So in total, there were 10,530 hate crimes reported to 14,859 law enforcement agencies across the U.S., What's important to note here is that there are still nearly 4,000 law enforcement agencies who refuse to report hate crime data to the FBI, as it continues to be an optional practice. Nevertheless, the total number of hate crimes reported in 2021 was up by nearly 24%. Race and ethnicity continue to be the most prevalent bias motivation for a hate crime, with 6,643 incidents reported. Sexual orientation bias was the second most common motivation, with 1,707 incidents reported. And hate crimes based on gender identity increased notably in 2021, with 342 incidents reported. There were 18 murders identified as hate crimes, and the most common type of crime involved threats and intimidation. Vandalism was the most common property crime involved in a hate crime. One-third of all the reported hate crimes occurred at the victim's home, but roadways were the second most common location, and the typical hate crime offender continues to be a young white male between the ages of 16 and 25 years of age. And in the state of Michigan, a county prosecutor has threatened to file criminal charges against a public library worker for allowing minors to check out an LGBTQ-themed graphic novel that contains, the, in the prosecutor's words, quote, child sexual abuse material, end quote. The county's library director said the prosecutor is welcome to arrest her whenever he likes. According to the Bridge, Michigan, Lapeer County Prosecutor John Miller says the book Maya Kobe's Gender Queer, a memoir, quote, borders on child sexual abusive material because it allegedly contains drawings of sex acts appearing to involve prepubescent boys. He said he began investigating the book after several county commissioners approached him about it. Miller says the book's presence in the county's eight public libraries may violate a law enticing anyone under 16 to commit an immoral act, to submit to an act of sexual intercourse, or an act of gross indecency, or any other act of depravity or delinquency. The charge carries a maximum sentence of four years in prison and a $4,000 fine. The law is usually used to prosecute child sex abusers, but Miller says the book, written by an asexual and non-binary author, entices young people to have sex. 
He says he will consult with community members before deciding to press charges, though he doesn't know whether he'd charge the county library director, the library board members, the library employees, or the author of the book. Miller says he'll also speak at a Lapper District Library board meeting to suggest removing the book from the county library shelves. If Miller does decide to press charges, it'll mark the first time in the state's history that a prosecutor has taken such action against a librarian. And here locally, Napa Valley College announced the creation of a new LGBTQ student learning community called the Pride Learning Community. Learning communities offer students an immersive, exciting, and engaging learning experience and the chance to learn with a cohort of students with a team of experienced faculty and college counselors. The program launches this next fall, and the first cohort will complete four classes together over the course of the next school year. These classes include two LGBT studies classes that lead to a degree or certificate. They also meet multiple graduation requirements for Napa Valley College, as well as for the UC and CSU system. Napa Valley College received an $81,000 grant from the California Community College Chancellor's Office to create programming that promotes LGBTQ student success. Learning communities are proven to increase student success in college, and the Pride Learning Community is Napa's fourth. The other learning communities support African American students, Latinx students, and Filipino students. Participation in the Pride Learning Community is open to all LGBTQ identified students and straight allies. There's no additional cost for students wishing to participate, and you can learn more at napavalley.edu. For Outbeat Radio News, I'm Greg Moralia. Pride Cap on June 11th. Eric Braverman, Senior Vice President of Marketing and Communications, said the Dodgers' annual Pride Night has become one of the most anticipated nights of the season. The Los Angeles Dodgers Foundation will donate 50% of their proceeds of a 50-50 raffle to the Los Angeles LGBT Center, which provides services and programming to aid LGBTQ individuals. And don't forget, Sonoma County Pride returns this year with in-person events happening June 3rd through the 5th. The festival and parade will happen in Old Courthouse Square on June 4th. Tune in for this month's Outbeat Extra on May 29th at 8 p.m. for a conversation with Sonoma County Pride organizers. For Outbeat Radio News, I'm Greg Moralia. Harvey Milk believed that the most effective way of changing hearts and minds about LGBTQ plus people was for people to come out and to tell their stories. In 2023, with nearly 400 pieces of anti-LGBTQ legislation currently pending in state legislatures across the country, Being out and telling our stories is more important than ever. Fourteen years ago, Nathan Mansky was similarly inspired by Harvey Milk, and he created I'm From Driftwood. It's an organization capturing the stories of LGBTQ plus people from throughout our country. And these videos are making visible and giving voice to people who are right now today being oppressed and targeted by all of this anti-LGBT legislation. Hey, Nathan, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Greg. It's, it's good to be back. It's it been is a while. Great to have you back. I, you know, I'm just trying to rack my brain thinking about when we had you on. I think it was when you were shortly after you created I'm From Driftwood. So that's got to be how many years now? Well, uh, good timing. It's, it's next week will be our 14 year anniversary. So it has definitely been a while. Wow. Time flies. And of course, that includes the COVID time, which you know, it just seems like a big blank in everybody's lives. But for our listeners who don't know or haven't heard uh, of I'm From Driftwood, uh, give us the story. Where did it come from? How did it come about? 
Yeah, and the the kind of nutshell version is that we are uh, the LGBTQIA plus story archive, and we uh, produce and publish first person uh, video stories of the queer and trans community. Um, we publish a new one every week, so we're this a growing archive of uh, our history and experiences. And um, you know, like I said, next week will be our 14 year anniversary. So so much has happened in the, in the queer community in that time, but. You know, back then, the, the film Milk, uh, starring Sean Penn and written by Dustin Lance Black, uh, which went on to win a, an Academy Award, of course, um, that had just come out and I had mm -hmm. seen it and was really moved by it. It was, you know, a, just an incredible film. If you haven't seen it, uh, highly recommended. Uh, the funny thing is I've only seen it once and I'm, I really need to go back and, and watch it again since it mm -hmm. had a, such a big, profound uh, uh uh, impact on my life. Yeah. But um, yeah, so I had seen it. And the next day, uh, the next morning after watching it, I was getting ready to go to work and, you know, literally like in between snoozes on my alarm clock and was thinking about a photograph of Harvey Milk. And uh, I have it published on our website. Uh, you can see it, but you, you might be familiar with just from the description. He is a black and white photo. He's in the San Francisco uh, Pride March and he's sitting on the hood of a car. And he's holding a big sign, and the sign reads, I'm from Woodmere, New York. And I don't know why that photograph was in my head, it, and I just couldn't stop thinking about it. And finally, I realized, I, I think the reason it was is because everyone associates Harvey Milk. You know, he was the first openly gay elected official in, in San Francisco. Uh, everyone associates him with this this big queer and trans mecca, you know, mm -hmm. in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. But here he is saying that he's not from there. He's from this town that most people have never heard of. And that to me meant that you're not alone, no matter where you are, no matter what you're going through. And I really, really connected with that because I was living in, in Brooklyn at the time, but I wasn't from there. I'm from Driftwood, Texas, mm. and which is a, a small, small rural town, grew up on a ranch. Um, and, you know, I had little to no exposure to uh, the LGBTQ plus community. So um, I really wanted to capture that feeling that I had in that moment of realizing that I wasn't alone. Uh, and I wanted to share that with other people through storytelling. And um, I, you know, the funny thing is I, that it all came to me like like a lightning bolt. I was like, I want to do this. That I really didn't feel like I would have the time to dedicate to it because I was, uh, I used to work in advertising as a copywriter, uh, you know, so I created and wrote ads. And I was mm -hmm. just working all the time, super busy as so many people are. and. I was like, I'll never have time to do this. And uh, so I saw Milk on Wednesday, thought of the idea Thursday morning. Friday, this was late 2008, I went into my job and I was laid off. So it was like this, oh, really? this magical yet completely terrifying three days because, you know, I, I got an ad degree from school. I was like building my career. I really was on this path. And then all of a sudden I had this idea that, you know, I had this like new new purpose and passion and of what I wanted to do. And then, you know, this is the height of the Great Recession. So there was little hope just to bounce right back and go back to uh, just find a job really quickly. So, um, you know, it, it kind of had this feeling of the universe grabbing me by the scruff of the neck and was like, mm -hmm. hey, this is what you're doing now. You know, like how, how crystal clear can I make it? This is what this is your new path. And uh, it, it, so for that reason, it was exciting losing my job was terrifying. You know, just, I was, uh, in my late twenties, I was, you know, a, it kind of felt like I was abandoning this path that I worked so hard to, 
to get on and to build um, all to like give it all up for this new unknown territory of uh, something that really excited me, which was, you know, serving and an the, the queer and trans community uh, with something that I, I really felt passionately about, but it was a total risk. I had no idea where it would go. Um, so I, I told all my friends about this, um, you know, like this new idea that I had and everyone rallied around me, everyone pitched in in whatever way they could. And we launched three months later, like, you know, three months is a, a short amount of time to, yeah, to throw together a website and to start collecting some stories and have something to publish with. And, uh, but yeah, March, uh, March 24th, uh, 2009, uh, we launched I'm from Driftwood. Wow. That is such a great story. And, and. I, I have to imagine that when you thought of the idea and then recorded the first story, you didn't have any idea that 14 years later you would still be amassing this huge archive. Absolutely no idea whatsoever. I, I think sometimes if I could go back and show myself 14 years ago where it would go, I, I would just be, um, you know, well, actually, I probably wouldn't do that because it might make him settle down and calm down <laughs> and like not work as hard. But uh it, it really was amazing how it all came to be. And, um, you know, soon, like the day I, I launched it, um, I just spent days emailing. Uh, again, this was 2008, 2009. So blogs were really big at the time. Mm -hmm. And I just emailed every LGBTQ blog that I could find. Um, and I've got to give credit to Andy Toll at Toll Road. Um, he, I describe it as like I kind of created this the, the Frankenstein's monster, but he was the lightning bolt that gave it life. Uh, he shared it on on Toll Road, and a lot of people uh, picked it up and uh, started submitting their stories, and and that really gave it the the that jolt that it needed to get started. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, it, it really and then because of that, and friends started sharing it, and uh, someone reached out to me. Uh, his name is Jason Costa. I had never met him before, and he said, "Hey, one of my good friends shared a story." Um, have you thought about where to take this and would you be interested in, in talking about turning this into a nonprofit? And to be honest, it had never crossed my mind. Like looking back now, it's, it's funny to think that this, it was never, you know, in my mind, but my, my initial idea was to collect enough stories that I could hand select some great written stories and compile them into a book. Oh, that was okay. like the extent that I, that I had thought about it. And, um, so Jason took me to lunch and, and told me that he was doing some consulting at a, a big law firm and that they could take me on as a pro bono client and help me navigate the nonprofit, you know, the formalizing, the, oh, yeah. the founding of it. And I'm so glad a lot of people ask me advice like, hey, I'm thinking about starting a nonprofit. Do you have any advice? And I'm like, yes. And it's going to be very basic, but just trust me, find a law firm to help you navigate right. that initial process. And um the great thing about law firms is that they have dedicated hours to pro bono services. So uh, a lot of them are, are actively looking for nonprofits to go to them. Uh, so if you are looking to start a nonprofit, um, you know, obviously you'll take care of the mission and the work and all that stuff, but you don't have to do the legal stuff yourself. Like there are so many people out there looking to help you. Yeah. So um, yeah, go, go find a law firm and don't be afraid of going to a giant one. Like they, you know, they're all looking for pro bono hours. So that's great. Um, that anyway, is so great I, advice. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say it's yeah. great advice and, and I'll echo it. Um, having started a nonprofit myself back in 2009, I would not have been able to do it had it not been for a friend of mine who is an attorney and was well, well versed in how to navigate all of the incorporation pieces of it. 
and and did it pro bono. I just would not have ever been able to put it together. So your advice is sage advice for sure. Yeah, I and I, I he is our board chair, and I, I he's a fantastic board chair. So um so I so advice go to a law firm, do but don't take the advice of working with Jason Costa. He's busy. He's he's mine. Don't take him. <laughs> <laughs> well, so. Over 14 years now, I think one of the unique things about what you're doing is you're collecting actual videos of people. There's a lot of YouTube stuff out there that people have put up themselves. There are a lot of different kinds of podcasts and audio interviews uh, of different stories from LGBT people. But you've put both together. You have the interview with the person so you can actually see the individual uh, who's in this conversation. How many total have you done so far? We have over the video. So that's, that's a good point because when we launched, we were only written stories. So people would write their mm-hmm. stories and submit them. Um, and then about six weeks or two months later, we started doing these video stories. And this was, a, a again, he's now a board member. Um, but I think the lesson here is if you help me in any way, I'm going to add you to the board. So be, be careful if you don't want to <laughs> join a board. Um, the, his name is Marquise Lee, and he, he had the idea of doing these, these stories where we, you know, they, they tell their story on camera. And we experimented with a few over one weekend, and it just took off. And people really resonated with the, the video stories. So over time, we started shifting our focus to uh, basically exclusively video stories now. Mm-hmm. And so we have about um, probably about 850 uh, wow. to 900 video stories and another uh, 800 uh, or so written stories. And at this point, we're uh, we're currently publishing a new video story every Wednesday. So, um, you know, it's a, a ongoing, growing archive uh, of stories. So, uh, we might shift the the publication schedule. We might start, we're kind of exploring the idea of seasons instead of weekly. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, we're we're exploring that right now. But, um, <clears throat> excuse me. The um, one one thing that we really focus on that that i am very proud of and and i feel like kind of sets us apart from um you know i say podcasts and videos because because we do videos and we also have a podcast but what makes ours special i feel is how much work we put into uh, helping the storyteller uh, craft and mold their story and you know that a lot of people are like oh you're doing videos and i'm like well it is video format, but we we really focus on what is a story, mm-hmm. and we do one-on-one coaching with all of our storytellers. Uh, we send over a storyteller guide. We focus on that the traditional narrative arc, you know. So there's a beginning, middle, and an end. There's a conflict, a resolution, and there's all these little things. You know, sometimes it feels like like a homework assignment, and we're we're, we're teachers like guiding them through this, and and we try not to make it feel like that, but um, you know, it's 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 our job to make sure that every story that we share is a story that people can follow sure. easily and is um, not that it's entertaining, but that, that it elicits a response and is, um, you know, sparks empathy. And there's actually a, a, a little story. Um, probably 10 years ago, I had an intern one summer and she was just incredible. Her name is Holly. And uh, you know, we, even before launching this, I knew that people would connect with storytelling, but it was difficult to articulate why. You know, everyone mm-hmm. understands, like, yeah, storytelling, I get it. Uh, but I wanted to be able to to talk to it in a more uh, in-depth way. Mm-hmm. So I asked Holly to do some research and come back with why storytelling is so impactful. 
And she did this incredible job and she taught me about something called mirror neurons, like mirror, like what you look into to, to see yourself, mm-hmm. neurons, like the neurological neurons in your brain, mirror neurons. And it, it's tough to say there's so many R's and <laughs> so, yeah, so mirror, mirror, it's like rural, like, you know, mirror neurons from rural towns. Uh, anyway, so um, what, what happens when you tell someone a story and you tell it well is you're activating those mirror neurons in their brain. And what that does is they, on a microscopic level, experience the same thing that you experienced. And that's what gives you that feeling of like, oh, I get you. I feel you. I get it. And that's what we know is empathy. So the reason that we put so much effort into helping people mold these uh, these stories into that that narrative arc is because that's what triggers mirror neurons the most. And that is, you know, our whole mission is about uh, empathy and that feeling of you're not you're not alone and that you belong. So we we really put all of our eggs in that basket of of those neurons and you know the science behind storytelling. So once Holly like you know did that knowledge transfer to me, I was like, oh man. And then we we further developed our our training process, and it was really just this this kind of light bulb moment of wow, like. I knew that storytelling was important, but now I know why, and now that can kind of guide our our process. So it was a uh, a great moment, and uh, why we focus so much on um, you know the 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 quality of our stories and, and the 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 type of our stories. Wow, I didn't realize there was as much science to it. Uh, it sounds like science to it, but it makes absolute sense. And of course, if people can see themselves just as you saw Harvey Milk. Right. There's a power that comes from that. Talk about some of the, the demographics of the people that have been participating. Yeah, we we make a real effort to make sure that the, uh, the, the not just the stories, but the storytellers themselves are fully representative of the queer and trans community. And if you I mean, obviously, the queer and trans community, we are everyone. So we want to make sure that the storytellers, um, as well as the story topics, are as diverse and representative as uh, the, the sounds a little cheesy. It's like the globe it's, it's humanity. I mean, because mm-hmm. everyone is, is queer and trans. So, um, you know, we, we've always had an eye on that, but recently we, uh, we were like, you know what, we need to, we need to formalize this in some way. You know, it's one thing to just say that like, yeah, our stories and storytellers are diverse, but what does that mean? So we, we, uh, this was just last year, we formalized something that we call it our story equity policy. And I know that's very like buzzwordy because it uses the word equity and policy, but we, it kind of helped us think of like, what's the point here? What's the goal here? You know? And so part of that uh, story equity policy is that at least half of our stories uh, throughout the year are from uh, black, indigenous and people of color, uh, basically non-white and uh, same thing with uh, gender, you know, so we, we thought about, you know, how many different ways can you be diverse? And that includes age, that includes races, that includes genders, that includes um, story topics and themes. So, uh, so we're keeping track of all these things and we just monitor it uh, regularly. We have board meetings every other month. So, you know, Damien, my, my, our program director uh, reports on that. So, um, so we're always keeping an eye on uh, making sure that that I from Driftwood is uh, representative of the community that we're that we're a part of. Yeah, I think that's super important because the people that you're talking about, making sure are visible, are 
generally the ones who are the least visible in our society, the ones who are most oppressed, um, the ones who have the most difficulty in coming out for a whole variety of intersecting reasons. So I, I think that's I think it's vital. Uh, in addition to being fascinating, right? Because everybody is is very very different, and all of those intersecting identities help shape an interesting story. I have to imagine. Exactly, and you know the funny thing is, is, is like we, the. I feel like a lot of companies and nonprofits and just everyone is now having these formalized policies, like as we do. And I think it's a healthy conversation to have like, okay, cool. This is making it official. It's putting numbers to it. It's, it's uh, giving you numbers and facts and figures to talk about. That is important. But a funny thing happens. Like once we, we can look at these numbers that we're doing and for example, like, okay, cool. Here's a, a, a Latina uh, storyteller who shared a love story. So her, her, but what does that mean? Like, cool, we have a story and, and uh, she is a lesbian Latina, but her story does not necessarily have anything to do with her race or, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's mm-hmm. a love story, but it's also important to, to see that like, okay, cool. Love stories are from people of all ages and genders and right. races. And, you know, so it's a, like, I don't know, is that a Latina story or is it a love story? But since she is Latina, then it is, it is both, you know? So it, it's, it brings up these, um, you know, like we, we can look at our spreadsheet and be like, cool, we are being representative of the community. But it, then that leads to a conversation of like, what that means. Are there other ways to think about this? You know, it's, it's, like the story itself is not about race, but the fact that she is Latina is important because then, uh, you know, underrepresented people can see themselves in her. Exactly. Uh, even though, you know, her story is not saying directly that she is Latina, but you can see it just by looking at her, right. which is important. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So obviously you've seen all of these. Uh, is there one in particular, one of the recent ones that uh, stands out to you as being particularly powerful or significant? You know what? There was one um, that we published a few weeks ago. Her name is Nicole, and I I just connected with it so much because it touches on an issue that I think every queer and trans person deals with, no matter what. Like, I mean, I'm I have been out for so long. I have this queer and trans nonprofit. I like organize pride things. I am so gay, like I am so openly <laughs> gay and, and out there. And like, I mean, I'm just so gay. So, I, so I, but I still occasionally will, will have this, like, I don't feel like everyone, I don't want everyone to know I'm gay right now. And in, in whatever setting that I'm in, you know, like mm. on a flight, like if somebody asked me what I do, I'm like, I don't want to get into it right now. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to talk about, LGBT stuff, or I don't want, I don't want to worry about their response, you know, Mm -hmm. so do I lie about what I do for work? Or do I tell them and they're probably going to be interested and then ask a bunch of questions. So should I sort of go back in the closet for this plane ride? You know, so it's stuff like that. So anyway, Nicole's story uh, touches on that she and her wife moved to uh, the suburbs. And she wasn't quite sure like if they should put up a pride flag or not. Um, and, and they ended up, you know, because they were very active in their queer community. They've always been activists. They've, you know, worked with uh, some pride organizations. And here they were, like, you know, married adults with kids 
like wondering, like, I don't know, should we like, and so it was just so relatable to me, even though like, I don't have kids, I'm not a woman, I'm, I don't live in the suburbs. But that experience is like, oh, I get it. Like, it happens all the time. Interesting. Well, let's take a listen to a little bit of Nicole's story. Hi, my name is Nicole Basher, and I'm originally from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I ended up going to college at the University of Pittsburgh, and it was quite a transition because growing up in Harrisburg, um, I didn't really know anybody that was LGBTQ. Um, and didn't really know what that meant or what visibility was. Um, and so going to the University of Pittsburgh was a brand new environment where I was surrounded by um, people who identified as LGBTQ for the first time in my life um, and started to understand um, that I was part of that community. Early on at the University of Pittsburgh, I um, became uh, head of the LGBTQ organization and you know really started living authentically um, you know, openly as a lesbian. So after college, I moved to Chicago and started working at a very queer affirming place where almost every employee identified as LGBTQ. After a couple of years working for that company, um, I decided to go back to law school and ultimately, you know, switched gears and started working in the legal profession. And uh, the legal profession is not exactly the same as a uh, queer, affirming, uh, loving environment. Um, and so, you know, really moving into a law firm was a completely different experience. You know, from the standpoint of patent law, uh, you need an engineering background um, to go into that area. So, you know, there are only about 50,000 registered patent lawyers in the U.S. And of the 50,000, less than 20% are women. And uh, even fewer are women of color, people of color, LGBTQ identified individuals. And so it really forced me to uh, go back into the closet in a way, um, just because I was brand new. I was working with people who are more senior to me, um, you know, who had client relationships. And, you know, I was scared of, you know, damaging those relationships. Um, so very early on in my legal career, you know, I didn't really understand um, you know, I didn't really see anybody visible, you know, at a senior leadership position who was LGBTQ, um, nor did I understand what it meant to be visible or why that was important. Um, you know, so for many years, um, that was, uh, even though if you Googled me, you could see, um, you know, my uh, being the president of the LGBTQ club um, in college, you could see I was part of Equality Illinois um, and ultimately the LGBT bar. You know, but those were not things that I was leading with, um, you know, my day-to-day -day job. So a few years after that, um, I got married to a woman. Um, and we, after living in the city of Chicago for 20 years, were looking to buy a house. So we originally moved to Evanston, which is the first city north, the first suburb north of Chicago, um, to, to test it out, so to speak. We ended up finding a house in a suburb just north of Evanston called Wilmette. And Wilmette is probably the most homogeneous community that you can find around the suburbs of Chicago. My wife and I had a lot of debate about this particular issue and how comfortable we felt moving here, you know, whether we'd be welcome, you know, or, you know, especially after living in the city for so long. Very early on, there was a discussion about, you know, how visible we wanted to be in the neighborhood. And we ended up putting a rainbow flag 
um, extending out of off of the front of our house. And it's like June, it's Pride Month, right? And I think p- part of it is if you live in a city, right? If you're in Philly or New York or Chicago, it's like Pride Month is such a big deal, um, right? And not having any, you know, it's not like there's suburban pride, at least not here, um, right? So it's not, there's not like any visible representation of Pride Month. Um, you know, so it wasn't, I think we were a little bit hesitant just in general because of the neighborhood, um, but there wasn't like a, a debate about it. We were both like, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's go ahead and do that. But I remember very specifically, um, you know, a, like a month or two after we moved in, we moved in in, in March. So I guess three months, you know, for, from a pride perspective, we'd put our flag up and one of our neighbors, you know, so we, my wife and I were both outside, you know, with our kids working in the yard and um, a neighbor walked by an, an older woman who stopped us and said, um, who looked up the flag and I was, my heart stopped. And I was like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen here? Um, and so she said to my wife, well, that's a really pretty flag. What country is that from? So my wife, um, you know, explains that it was representative of, you know, of LGBTQ plus, you know, people, uh, you know, and, and meant that it was a welcoming environment. You know, she she was very respectful and, and took in that information, you know, and said, well, thanks, thank you for sharing. And, you know, kind of continued on her way. She was just, she happened to be walking by. That was um, interesting, but also reaffirming, okay, this is, you know, what it means to live in a neighborhood um, like this. You know, a, a couple of months after that, um, we received an email from a neighbor. My wife and I were at the dinner table with our kids and um, at the very end of dinner, you know, I was looking at my phone and saw that there was an email from somebody that I didn't recognize. And so I opened the email and started to read it and realized it was from a neighbor. And it started out and said, you know, you don't know me, um, but I, um, you know, I contacted some other neighbors to get your email addresses, so I hope that's okay. Um, but I wanted to let you know that my sixth grade daughter just came out. And a big reason that she felt comfortable in doing that was because of your rainbow flag and that she felt comfortable um, in the neighborhood and knew that there were supportive families and people that would accept her for who she is. You know, the tears were flowing. Both of us were crying, um, you know, and, and, and really having grown up in a place that, you know, not understanding the importance of visibility. I think in the queer community, we talk about you need to be visible and like we, I think we inherently understand that it is important, but actually to have real life examples like that um, has never happened to me before. And so it really was a moment where I recognized the importance and the impact that we can have on, on everybody really. But in this case, uh, you know, a kid who, you know, was really struggling to find their identity and I'm sure what they thought was a very um, homogeneous community as well. Wow, what a story. I mean, that just really shows the power of not only telling the story, but of that rainbow flag. Great story. I can't wait to listen to some of the other ones. And, and, and I think you're right. Being able to see the person as they're talking is a whole nother level that makes it much more intimate uh, as opposed to just uh, hearing it. So you mentioned that you've got staff now. I mean, this started out as an idea with you. How large of an organization is I'm from Driftwood now? So yeah, we're now a uh, we're a staff of two. So there's me, I'm the executive director, and then there's our program director, uh, Damian Middlefelt, and mm-hmm. and that's it for full time uh, staff. And we have a, a board with seven members uh, of our of our directors, uh, and you know we we also hire people 
on an as-needed basis. So, you know, as an example, we have a, a podcast. You can listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, it's, it's great. We have um, – there's two hosts, uh, Alex Berg and Phil, a.k.a. Corinne, and mm-hmm. it was produced by Andy Egan Thorpe. And it's a, a, an incredible podcast. They basically – uh, listen to two stories that touch on a similar theme, like love stories, for example, or uh, being out as an elected official. Mm. And they'll uh, have conversations around that. And they'll uh, bring in uh, sometimes a storyteller, sometimes a celebrity, sometimes an elected official, you know, someone relevant to the theme of the episode. Um, so, you know, so we would we'd hire them for uh, a couple of seasons. Uh, and there's there's 44 episodes of the podcast, if, if you want to give it a listen. But this is this is obviously more than a full time job for you, which again is probably something you never imagined fourteen years ago. No, no, not at all. I, uh, you know, I I went from living on unemployment, looking for other jobs in advertising, while also doing this, and mm-hmm. then, uh, you know, it really took uh, our first grant is when things started turning around, um, and that was, you know, the incredible. I had a. Our initial board, it was uh, me and two others, and we were just struggling. I mean, it's just hard to get a small nonprofit off the ground. And we just had a meeting, and, and I was like, look, we have to – here's like a small list of things that I think we need to do. If we can't do these things, I think we did our best. We have a good handful of stories. This will exist forever, but I have to like go get – a, a job, you know, mm. and they, you know, were like, yes, but let's make sure to make these things happen and make them a success. One of those was having a successful fundraiser that we were planning. And one was to successfully uh, lock down a, a grant proposal that we uh, were applying to. And we did both of those things. And that really was like the the big turning point um, in the organization. So uh, yeah, that was, and, you know, I mentioned him earlier, that was Jason Costa and another board member, Beth Kaiser, who, um, you know, she and Jason were, were just really instrumental in getting us off the off the ground. That's great. And so you obviously heard from a number of people who've listened to the podcast and have watched the videos. How what are some examples of how people are using this? I'm thinking about teachers as one, but how have you seen the video interviews being used other than just listening to yeah. them? Yeah, I, the I mean, my favorite way that they're used is is like what you mentioned, just people watching them. And part of my, I'm supposed to do it every week, but it usually becomes every other week. I'll just go to YouTube and just go to the recent comments and mm-hmm. uh, moderate them. And when I say moderate, I mean like just delete the overtly offensive ones, and then you know delete spam, and so just kind of keep an eye on them. And just going through that process, it just like it's almost like therapy, like Zen for me because it, it just keeps me focused on this one task and it's just like a, a little, like I'm plugged into the, uh, our viewers minds and I'm just like listening to what they're feeling and, and what they're thinking. And it is just incredible. I mean, it, it's comments as simple as like, Oh, this made me smile so much. I'm like, great. Our stories are making people smile. Like that's a good feeling. Mm-hmm. Some are, you know, some people will share their own personal stories in the comments. So it's starting these conversations. So it, it's just, that is, that will always be, my favorite way of people using our stories. Um, but you also said an, another great way, which is teachers use them. Uh, they can use them when uh, teaching about uh, different genders or uh, different experiences, like the trans experience, because uh, these are all uh, just real personal stories. So if anyone's doing uh, uh, lessons on 
um, just learning about different cultures or individuals or humanities or whatever it is. I mean, this is a, a gold mine for, for teachers and we encourage it. Like it's all of our stories are on YouTube. They're uh, on our website, which acts as an archive. So they're mm -hmm. very easy to find and filter on the website. So we encourage people to use them in any way they want. Um, you know, so, so, and people do, and, and that's great, but uh, they've also been used in um, like state houses or like uh, political needs. If, if people need to provide a human face to an issue that's being debated, um, the stories we've heard have been used uh, in, in those examples as well. Hmm. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, right now, I think it's more important than ever that in Harvey Milk's words, people need to be out, right? That was the way he believed, and I really agree with him, that we're going to change hearts and minds. And it feels like there's such a pushback going on in our country right now, especially in some of the southern states. Uh, what, you know, what are your thoughts about what's happening with the trans community? And what should people do? Should they become more visible or should they retreat for their own sort of sense of well-being? I mean, what are your thoughts? That is a, a, a tough question because the, first and foremost, everyone should do whatever they need to do <clears throat> to stay safe and make sure that they are okay. Um, even when it comes down to coming out, mm -hmm. uh, if you are dependent on your parents or dependent on a guardian, uh, make sure that you have a backup plan. If they do kick you out, make sure that you have somewhere to go. Make sure that it's a stable place to go. You've talked to a friend. You've talked to another adult uh, that is there to, to catch you if you fall, like a safety net. Mm -hmm. um, that trumps everything else. You don't need to be an activist right now. Just take care of yourself. Um, that That is always, always number one. Uh, if you are at a place where you're safe and comfortable, um, I mean, I... I I don't even think there should be much of a, 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 a gray area. Like if you're able to be an activist, be one, uh, be out in the streets. Um, you know, there's a lot of pushback, like, you know, being like slacktivists and, and, and social media posts, like, cool, do that. Don't only do that though, you know, but, but share things, be vocal. Um, but also I think it's important to identify within you, like what way you are best at being an activist and speaking up. Because I like during some political campaigns, I would volunteer to like make phone calls. Mm -hmm. It was like a knife was in my gut every phone call. And I, I mm. soon learned, I was like, this is not for me. This is not how I am best suited as an activist. And because some people, it doesn't bother them at all. And like going door to door, like knocking on doors, like I will start sweating. I'm like, it, it is just not for me. And it is for some people. So what I learned is like, okay, I, I can do other things, you know, that, that, don't make me sweat uh, in, in terms of activism. And so I, I, uh, so I, I guess specifically right now with all these um, anti-trans bills going around, if you are trans and, and like just take care of yourself first and then, you know, also like so many allies uh, are constantly asking, what can we do? Um, assign them like you be the general and you tell the soldiers what to do you know look at the allies as like they enlisted like they're ready to help tell them to go show up tell them to go march on the capitol tell them to go out in public and say things because it's easier for them to say i am an ally of a trans friend you know like they're going to be safer than you know a trans mm -hmm. person 
who doesn't feel safe. So put allies to work. They're looking for ways to be helpful. Um, and they have that, you know, the, the, they have the, the luxury of that privilege of being cisgender or, or maybe straight or something else, but, um, put your friends to work. I, 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 I mean, everyone has friends and everyone knows how everyone wants to help in some way. So, you know, take them up on that offer and, and have them go do something, but yeah, please just stay safe. It's, it's getting more hostile out there. Um, and just do, you know, do, figure out what way you can do something and do that, but never at the, the risk of putting yeah. your, your life or safety in, in, at risk. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree with you. And so that begs the question about your organization and how you're positioning in it. What, what, what role do you see I'm from Driftwood having in this LGBTQ civil rights movement that we're in. I mean, there's a number of organizations out there and, you know, being around for 14 years, you're one of the ones that's lasted and survived a good amount of time. Do you see a role for it in this civil rights pursuit? Absolutely. And, and it, it sometimes is a uh, conflict with myself because personally, like I, Nathan Mansky, and I'm more like, like claws out marching in the streets, like out there, you know, like chanting and screaming and like mm -hmm. making calls and stuff like that. I feel like I'm from Driftwood is not that what it is, is more, um, it's more for us, you know, it's more for people to watch these stories and understand that they belong in this world and in this community. Uh, so it's more of a direct form of activism with, for our community to and for and by our community. You know, it's like, um, if you are someone who doesn't feel like you're in a safe space, like, come watch these stories, know that there's nothing wrong with you, know that other people are going through similar experiences as you. Uh, it's really just, you are not alone. And that message, um, it belongs on the streets, but it also, it really just belongs like, okay, this is going to sound a little cheesy. It, it, it belongs in our hearts. <laughs> like it, mm -hmm. It's more of a, a personal, like, you know, arms around each other's shoulders, like, like hey, we're in this together. It's going to be okay. You know, like, like it's more of this hand-holding type uh, nonprofit However, the other side of that is you cannot argue with our first person stories and that drives people nuts. Like people who people think that trans people don't or shouldn't exist and our stories completely turn that on its head. And it's like, yes, they do. And here they are. And right. so it, it's, it's very like this silent, like big contrast and and it's a uh, uh you know all these things are about you know making it impossible to be trans you know they're trying so hard to just like delete trans people from the universe and mm -hmm. it's just impossible and so what i from driftwood does it, it is it it just says the opposite it's like we do exist these are our stories and these are things that happened to me. There is no dispute. This is not a conversation. This is not an argument. This is not a disagreement. I'm simply sharing my, my real lived experience. And that is just, it's unbeatable. It's, it's, you can't defeat that. You, you can't argue with it. You know, I, I also think of I'm from Driftwood as a stage and we are the, you know, the board and, and me and everyone who, else who's helped we were the carpenters and we like maintain it and clean it. And we like, you know, make sure the stairs are there and there's a ramp and there's like, people can come share their stories. Um, 
but then it's everyone else who comes up and shares these stories. So, so we're making sure that the stage is stable so that people can come share their stories, but there's no, there's only one person at a time. There's no debate. It's like, you know, you're listening to these people's lives and experiences and there's no, there's no argument here. There's no argument to queer and trans people existing and having experiences. Yeah. Well, you've had a chance to tour around the country a bit, uh, right? What, what's been some of the reactions <laughs> that you've had from people? Uh, yeah, a little, I, I laughed because it's, it's, a. Uh, um, yeah, we did travel a little bit. We, back in 2010, we did a, a 50 state story tour and we went to all 50 states. Uh, we drove to, you know, the 48 states mm-hmm. and then flew to Alaska and Hawaii. And it was just a, an incredible once in a lifetime, magical, very difficult experience. And, but just, you know, one of the most uh, rewarding experiences of my life. And, uh, on that tour, you know, we, we, had a couple of rules. One is we had to get at least one story from every state. So we couldn't just quickly drive through Rhode Island, for example. Um, and we had to spend the night at least in once every state. So um, some states got more nights depending on the size. A lot mm-hmm. of it was just about logistics. Um, and on that tour, we would also have these story sharing um, events at, or presentations that I would do. And, you know, so for example, we would uh, be invited by uh, different centers uh, in different cities. So part of the presentation, I would I would screen stories. I would talk about those mirror neurons and, and encourage people to share stories while we were there. And part of, at the end of every presentation, I would always, I kind of, you know, we were on the road for four months. Uh, I kind of got like in this routine and I would ask the question to all the attendees. I would say, what is it like being LGBTQ plus here? wherever we are, because I was curious what, mm-hmm. you know, I had this like rare opportunity to be in all 50 states in a short amount of time. So I was wondering just to kind of like have my finger on the pulse and see what everyone's general vibe was. So I wanted this open-ended question and something really interesting happened that I realized at the end of the tour, uh, when I was like kind of reflecting on this, we were in, uh, in Los Angeles and West Hollywood at their center, which is amazing, very well-funded. I mean, just like everything you can imagine or want at a center was there. Hmm. And so I asked that question, what is it like being LGBTQ plus here? And all their hands shot up. It was all like late Mm teens, mid to late teens and early Mm twenties. And one of them started answering and she said, just because we're in West Hollywood doesn't mean it's easy for us. Mm. Like my parents think I'm, I'm at a, uh, a study hall right now. I had a live, like they don't know I'm gay. Like I don't, or I'm a lesbian. I, I don't live in West Hollywood. I live at home with my parents on my street in my neighborhood. And I can't tell them like where I am right now. Mm. And everyone like outside thinks that, Oh, it's West Hollywood. Everything is fine. It's not. So that was really eye opening. But then this was in, uh, in Tennessee, we were, uh, same thing, but this time this it wasn't a center. It was somebody's uh, living room who had opened it up to let this uh, uh, queer group meet up. And it was probably four people, um, excuse me, um, probably four people. And I did the presentation, shared the stories, and I asked that same question. What is it like being LGBTQ here uh, in Tennessee? All, their, all four hands shot up and they said, just because we're here doesn't mean we're a bunch of country bumpkins and that it's so terrible to be gay here. Like my parents know I'm gay. I hold hands with my boyfriend walking down the street in the middle of town. 
you know, just because we're here doesn't mean that like everything is terrible. So all of a sudden, like in a way it was the exact same response in terms of not wanting everyone else to have this preconceived notion of what it's Mm -hmm. like to be them. And I also know somebody in that same group in Tennessee, uh, was kicked out when they came out. So, so the, the lesson isn't like things are great in small towns and things aren't as great in cities. Like that was not it. It was about challenging this, this stereotype about people wherever they are and wanting to be known for their own personal stories and experiences and just to really just tear apart, uh, the stereotypes. So that was like such a, a, a great, and it was, it was on opposite ends of the country. It, it was opposite ends of the, the timeline, you know, the beginning of the tour and the end of the tour. It was really just this beautiful, like, uh, perspective to have at the end of the tour. Boy, what an education you got. Oh, every, every hour I was, I was learning something on that tour. Yeah. Yeah. That would be fascinating for sure. Well, I'm from Driftwood as a nonprofit organization. So you obviously depend on donations and grants to operate. For our listeners who have been so inspired tonight, where can they go to support you? Uh, you can just go to ifromdriftwood.com. Uh, and there is all, we just relaunched our website last year. So I hope you enjoy it. It should be very easy to navigate. Uh, and there's a donate button right up at the top in the menu, menu bar. Um, but also like something that we, we try hard to do and, and, most of our funding actually comes from this. We, um, we try to work with people more than just a transactional, like, Hey, donate to I from Driftwood, but we work with a lot of, uh, corporate partners and companies and businesses and universities and schools. So it's more of this like embedded, like interlocked partnership to where, um, you know, we get funding, we're a nonprofit. So it comes in as a donation and, but we get stories of your colleagues or employees or students and, you know, we work with them, we teach them about storytelling. Uh, and it's, it's very much, um, it's, it's very much this like embedded partnership to where, um, you know, we get stories of your, your colleagues, but then we, we, I also come into a presentation and I talk about the science of storytelling. And, uh, during that presentation, I screen the stories that we collected of your colleagues or peers. And it just creates this, uh, sort of magical moment of, you know, oh, cool, I'm seeing my colleague on screen. And then they share this deeply personal story that I'd never mm. heard of. And so it creates this, you know, camaraderie, this, this openness, you know, this, this rare uh, moment of, of personal sharing in a professional space. Uh, and it works really well. So even beyond making a, a simple donation, which is very much appreciated, think about who um, is in your life that we could partner with, uh, whether it's the company that you worked at, if you know someone who works at a company or a university, we, I mean, we absolutely love, uh, working with these, these partnerships because it, it, uh, helps us provide programming. Cause a lot of the, a lot of people ask how we find our storytellers and it's very organic. We've gotten stories from people who simply email us and we're like, yes, let's do it. Uh, we've gotten stories from people I meet at a bar. Uh, it's, it's really, I've, gotten stories from people from grinder <laughs> like it's really has run the whole gamut so uh and and i love that about it it, it should feel off it just helps make it feel authentic and and organic so um yes please do make a donation also uh email me through the contact form on the website and uh you know let's talk about how we can uh forge a partnership together perfect and where can people go to follow you 
Uh, I'm pretty easily found. Uh, I'm on, I think Instagram would probably be the, the, the best way. Uh, my handle is at N Mansky. That's M A N S K E. That's my last name. Perfect. And if you missed any of those websites, we'll have them on our own website at outbeatnews.com. Just click on show notes at the top of the page and you can take a look at the I'm from Driftwood videos and you can follow Nathan. Uh, my friend, I've got to congratulate you. I am so impressed with all the work that you've done. It's super important. As a teacher, I have used the videos from with my students, my especially my high school students who take LGBT studies classes and who are trying to figure out who they are. I can tell you firsthand, they're super inspirational. So I appreciate that very much. I love hearing that. Yeah. Um, I, I, and I appreciate you using our stories. That's, I, you know, so much of my work in life is just sitting here by this laptop. So to hear that the stories are being used as tools out there, uh, especially for educational uh, purposes, that, that really makes me proud and happy. So thank you for sharing that. And thanks for being with us tonight. All right. Thank you. Nice chatting with you again. And if you haven't had time yet to check out the stories Nathan's been capturing, take some time and go to imfromdriftwood.com. There's definitely something there for everyone. And if you feel so inspired to share your own story, you'll find a link to reach Nathan there as well. Well, that wraps up our hour. Tune in next Sunday night for Outbeat Radio's Living Proof with Sheridan Gold and Dr. Diana Grayer. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on KRCB Radio. In the meantime, do have a great week, and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. Outbeat News In Depth is hosted and produced by Greg Moralia. Our shows are available for on-demand play anytime on our website at outbeatnews.com and on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and now on iHeartRadio. Find links to subscribe at OutBeatNews.com. I love to change the world, but I don't know what to do. So I give it up to Broken down and tired Of living life on the merry-go-round And you can't find a fighter But I see it in you, so we gon' walk it out Move mountains Support for Outbeat Radio on KRCB-FM comes from listeners and from Rocky, the free-range chicken, and Rosie, the original organic chicken. Air-chilled, non-GMO, locally raised right here in Sonoma County with no antibiotics ever. More information is available at rockyandrosie.com. You're listening to 104.9 KRCB-FM Roanoke Park and KRCG-FM Windsor, Sonoma County's NPR station. It's 9 p.m. Stay with us. Beale Street Caravan is next.